so we are the week before, well, this is the beginning of Holy Week, and a lot of things happened this week in the Christian calendar. Of course, this was the big Palm Sunday, and then we have the Last Supper, we have the arrest, we have the trial, put air quotes around trial, it was a mockery of a trial, and we have the execution, we call it the crucifixion, but it was just out firing squad execution, just nasty. Uh, and then we have the resurrection next Sunday. But we have some things to think about. Oh, I need to introduce myself. I'm sorry. I'm Wendell. I'm living, loved by the Father. I'm uh, recovering from spiritual and emotional abuse, and I've uh, been addicted to food and to control and to work. I've had issues with porn, with alcohol, with depression, with panic attacks, with rage. Uh, a lot of that's in the past, but it's part of my story, so I, that's how I introduced myself. Yeah, okay. So um, I feel kind of uh, f- funny, silly, uh, teaching this tonight in front of Laura because she, she absolutely killed this sermon this morning on the crucifixion. It was, I, I just sat there in a puddle of tears, and then we had to go out and play music afterwards, and I was supposed to do it without. So anyway, those of you who are at Greenwood, and I'm sure it was good here at Melrose, but at Greenwood it was just, you bless me, girl. Um, but I wanted to bring a few things out about the death of Christ that deal with our journey of hope and healing. Um, I don't know where you're at in your journey. I, don't, I have no clue where you're at. I do with some of you. The key to me and the key to those of you who have shared it with me, to it's like a breakthrough you make in your personal healing, your personal journey of hope and healing. And that is when you finally discover, and it's not a a conceptual discovery, it's an experiential discovery. It's when you know that you know that you know that God absolutely loves you. And then there is nothing you can be, do, say, feel, whatever, to make him unlove you, period. It's just, you can't, because he absolutely adores you. And somehow he can pull this off. I couldn't. He can. Every single one of us is his favorite. And he loves us that way. If there was ever an image in the whole story of Jesus, and especially in Holy Week, an image that displays his love, it was, it's the cross. And so I want to talk about the cross just for a few minutes. There are, um, there are traditions that got started way back thousands of years ago that tried to explain the why of it. Why did Jesus have to die? And I want to talk about a couple of the uh, answers that people came up with. And then I want to talk about the one that, that Pastor Laura preached about this morning and the one that I believe and the one that set me free. Okay? So one, one of the, the ideas, and this isn't a theology lesson, but... When we start into this, you're going to be like, well, I've kind of thought that at, at times. And so it's going to resonate with us. But one of us, uh, one of the, the explanations for why Jesus had to die was supposedly back in the garden. It's almost, and this, it's not written that way, but it's almost as if God and Satan had a, 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 a bet going or a card game or something. And, and uh, Satan said, I know that I can win your people over. I know that I can get them. And so he shows up in the garden 
and he gets the temptation out there in front of Eve, and she falls for it, and then Adam falls for it. And so, in a sense, um, sometimes we have almost thought that we're kidnapped by Satan, hoodwinked slash kidnapped by Satan, and now we're kind of, our fate is kind of sealed because we're in captivity to him, and uh, the, you know, the extreme is, and, and this is aging me, and some of y'all will say, who is that? But Flip Wilson, remember he used to say, the devil made me do it? Remember that? Um, do what? <laughs> I don't know that I can. Um, but, but that whole idea that, that we're now held captive to Satan, that, that he's kidnapped us and he's holding us hostage, and, and that sometimes we, we've written music about it, we've preached sermons about it, that somehow when Jesus died on the cross, it paid for our ransom. It was, it was like God showed up with a briefcase full of cash, you know, here it is, my dead son, and, and, and I'm taking this to the extreme so we see how ludicrous this is. But he showed up with a, 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 um, a briefcase full of cash, basically his dead son, and presented it to Satan and said, now is that good enough for you? Now I want my people back. I mean, every, you look at that and you think, but that, that has been a running theory in certain circles of people and certain theologies through, through the years. I kind of want to get that out of the way because that's like uber ludicrous. That's just like, what? But there have been some who've held that. Then there's another one that's, that's widely held still today, widely, widely held. And, and the, kind of the theological term for it is transactional theology, that, that somehow our sins had piled up so high and God was so vicious, and I'm overstating this again on purpose. God was so viciously angry at us. The wrath had just piled up. I can't take any more of these stinking, rebellious, ornery human beings. Somebody's going to die. I'm going I'm to get them. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to, you know, and he looks over, it's, and, we, and we think about it at like um, uh, Abraham and Isaac, you know, in the Old Testament. That's the way we, we connect things that shouldn't be connected. But we automatically go there. We connect these two stories. And we say, yes, just like that. It's, it's God is ready to just stomp us out. And at the last minute, this God with anger issues looks over at his son and says, boy, you're going to take their place. And I'm going to kill you instead. I, somebody's got to die. I'm overstating it. I know I am. Somebody's got to die, and it's going to be you. So they had that little wrestling match in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't want to do this, Dad. Yeah, you're going to do it. I mean, that's one way to look at that conversation. You know, have this little conversation back and forth. And so finally, all right, whatever you say, I'll do it. And so he goes. And then God says, you know, he goes to the bank and he checks the checkbook and he sees that our debt has been paid. Okay. The, you, you, the, the slate is, so it's a transaction that takes place. You see, and God is, God's anger is finally appeased. And, and, and so we're all good to go. And, you know, some <clears throat> would say, well, there's good biblical precedent for this. Because that was the kind of the idea in the Old Testament that God told Adam and Eve, if you sin, you'll surely die, which they didn't physically die, but death started really quick. They, everything inside them, their humanity started to die, but, but we take it as physically died. Some of us do anyway. And, and so on into the Old Testament, God was like, okay, since uh, you sin and I'm not going to strike you dead, then you bring your favorite lamb and you bring it to the church when you come, and uh, your kids come and they watch, and it, you know it's brutal, it's it's bloody, it's vicious, but the lamb will die so that you don't have to be your substitute. 
And so even some of the writers in the New Testament, like the writers of Hebrews, says it's the same thing. This is just a continuation of that. And so we say, okay, so that's what it is. It is a transaction. That's how we've arrived at this. This is a predominant idea that's widespread in our, in our Christian culture in the West. Wow, we have a God with anger issues. We have a God who can't contain his wrath. And so he, he takes it out on his own son. And then he says, okay, get, I guess you're okay now. If you put your trust in him, then you'll be okay. And, you know, I've just got to stop and think about that and think, why, why is my heart not strangely warmed here? Why, why am I not feeling this? This is not doing anything to make me feel the love of God. I just want that to kind of soak in. But this is the predominant theology in America today. This is what a lot of people are brought up on. This is where we believe Easter goes. That's where Good Friday and Easter goes. If, if you, well, okay, if you read Hebrews, you're going to get a little bit of that. And we don't know that Paul wrote it, but it's likely he did. And you've got to keep in mind that Paul is a recovering Pharisee. He's been his whole life looking at life judicially. This thing I've got with God is about rules and about judicial things, about coloring inside the lines and walking the straight and narrow. And so that's the way he looks at things. And so that's how he understood that. He was understanding it the best he, he could. So we have a choice. We either take the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, that explanation, or we can go to the book of John. And we can hear what Jesus said about his own death. And when I saw this, I thought, I'm not going to let whoever wrote Hebrews, maybe it's Paul. I'm not going to Paul, let Paul explain Jesus. I'm going to let Jesus explain Paul. I'm going to go to the source and see what he says. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus told the story about the good shepherd. Remember that? He said that the sheep know his voice. And, and you know how that worked? It's so cool. I did some study on this way back right out of seminary. I just read a bunch about the good shepherd. But they had a communal fold in the middle of their towns where all the shepherds on bad nights, they would bring all their sheep in so all their flocks would get mixed up. And so in the morning... Shepherd A, you know, Billy Bob, he would come and he would stand at the front gate and he would whistle his song or say the words he said, you know, whatever it was. And his sheep, who were all mingled in with all the rest of the sheep, would hear his voice and come filtering through the pack of sheep and follow him out. And all he would do, and if you notice that in the West, we drive our sheep with dogs. In the Middle East, they call their sheep with songs and with love and with the shepherding is different in the Middle East. So they would go out singing or whistling or doing something, just talking so the sheep knew their voice, and they would follow them. And Jesus described, he said, the good shepherd, his sheep know his voice. That, that's heartwarming. In, you know, already that's got my attention. Oh, we're not, we're not going to the bank here, huh? We're not doing some kind of legal transaction. It's not in the courthouse or the bank or on a business desk. This is something else. So Jesus begins to describe this warm relationship between the shepherd and the sheep and they're hearing his voice. And then he goes so far to say, and you know what? And the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep against an angry father. No, he said he lays his life down against the thieves and the wolves. I don't think he's describing God's wrath there. I think what he's doing is he's describing the darkest side of humanity, as dark as we can get, 
as deceitful and cruel as we can get. And, and the way Pastor Laura unfolded it this morning was so, I was going to say beautiful, but it wasn't. It was ugly. It was, it was heart-wrenching the way she unpacked it. But it's, it's like we did all we could to make him break and run. We did all we could to make him give up on his love for us. And I mean, we lied about him. We spit at him. We falsely accused him. We pierced him with, with spikes and with spears and with thorns. And we did all this. And, you, you know, stop and think about this. This hit me just a couple weeks ago. There are a lot of people who live in chronic pain. I mean, horrid, terrible chronic pain. And they, I don't, I don't, follow me through with this, okay? Follow me through. They don't have the pleasure of dying. They can't say, well, in a few hours I'll be dead and this will be over. They know I'm going to wake up to this tomorrow and I'm going to wake up to it the next day and I'm going to wake up to the next day. And so we talk about the physical pain that Jesus endured on the cross, and it was terrible. But that's not the hard part. The physical, there are a lot of people who have experienced worse physical pain than that. The hard part is for him to absorb all this hatred, all this deceit, all this cruelty, all aimed at him. And he said, I made you. I give you every breath you take. There were millions of sperm and, and, and the egg, and I picked that one to come together with that one because I wanted to create you. I wanted to see what we could have together. And you are driving the nails into me, and you are falsely accusing me, and you are hating me. And you're, even as I'm struggling to take a breath, even as I'm struggling for my last breath, you're, you're making fun of me. You're mocking me. You're enjoying my death. And my suffering. So I don't think it was the physical suffering so much as the, the, the personal. Jesus took it personally, but he didn't. It's not like he pouted and took it personally. He took it personally in that he absorbed it. He absorbed the hatred and the darkness and the deceit and the cruelty. And the whole way, it was like, I will not unlove you. I absolutely refuse to unlove you. And, and Laura pointed out three things this morning so beautifully that happened in the cross. They're in the different Gospels. In one, he looks at the thief right next to him. He said, dude, I'm going to see you in just a few minutes. It's all okay. Don't be upset. We're both going to die physically. He's thinking of this other guy who deserved to die. He's thinking of this other guy. And, and he's only got so many breaths left. And he's thinking, I want to assure you, you can die in peace. Because I'm going to be with you in just a few minutes. And then he looks, can you... It's hard to imagine hanging there and looking down at this mix. You've got people who absolutely are devastated by your death. And then you've got other people who have this sneer on their face. We finally got you. We can have our little kingdom back. You know, you're not going to turn any more tables over in our church anymore. You're not going to lead anybody astray with your crazy teachings. You can't walk on water anymore. You can't change water to wine. You can't raise any more dead people because we're killing you. And they're just, you know, if you're really God's son, come, and they're, they're just being as ugly as they can to him, and he looks at and he says, Dad, forgive them. These are my people here. Forgive these people. 
They don't know what they're doing. And then the warmest thing is, is what Laura brought out this morning. It's in the Gospel of John. And he looks down there, and there's John, the one he loved. And there's his mama right there. Those are the first human eyes he ever looked on. You think about that? When God chose Mary, he said, who do I want to look at the first time I open my eyes? Who do I want to look? I want to look at that little girl right there. I want to look up into her eyes because there's something in her that I love and I like. And I want to look at her. And so Jesus is looking into those eyes that he's looked into so many times that comforted him when he was down and led him when he was astray. And, you know, he looked into his mother's eyes and he, instead of thinking about himself and instead of saying, oh, mama, help me, he's looking at her and he said, behold your son, behold your mother. He's, he's taking care of his mother. So you look at him, you look at him in this role. You look at him dying. And I don't, you know, we always want to talk about God's power, God's ability. God can flex and God can do this and that. And you look at that and you say, he's naked. And he's bleeding out and every breath becomes more shallow and more struggled and more labored. He's about gone. This is our God and he's about God. And yet he loves us. John said and he loved them to the very end. With his very last thought, with his very last breath, he loved us. I'm sorry, y'all, but that's not transactional. <laughs> that's relational. That's re you can hate me with everything you've got, and I will still love you. And I have the power to turn you all into toads in a nanosecond. You know, I could call 10,000 angels. I could do whatever I want to do, but I've given all that up so that I can show you how much I love you. Several things I think need to be said, and then, then we'll wind it up and turn it back over to Matt. Um, one is, and I, I don't want to go back to the, the dark and the, and the negative side of this, but I just want us to think about this. What I grew up thinking, and what I, by the shaking of your heads, most of you did too, what I grew up believing was this transactional thing. A transactional thing is kind of, okay, let's get this business deal rolling. The first thing that has to happen is, is we have to have a willing scapegoat. So the son will be the scapegoat. Okay, well, you do sign, you sign your part of the document, and then he dies, and then we look at that down through history, and we say, I either believe that that's going to get my ticket punched to heaven or not. I do believe it. Okay, so I'll sign my name on the document. The transaction's done. So we've done our transaction. And we file it away just like we do last year's tax return. You know, man, I did well last year. I got several extra deductions. That's pretty good. So there's a little happy factor, you know. There's a little happy memory factor that will last for a week or two. What are you going to do with your refund? What are you going to do with your newfound salvation? Now you know you're going to go to heaven. You see you see where I'm going with this? So this little transactional thing that gives this little burst of joy. And why is it that so many people that you've seen have signed their name on the line? They, and I'm not being irreverent, but I guess I am. They got saved. You know, they did their little thing they're supposed to do. And then several months later, they look at you and they say, it's, it's, there's, where's the joy? I, nothing's changed in me. 
I still hate my neighbor. I still want to talk bad about so-and-so. I still want to, you know what I'm saying? There's nothing, my heart's not changed. I'm still the same person I was. But I got this paper that says, you know, a transaction doesn't change my heart. It, it doesn't, it, it makes me happy for a little while, but it doesn't change my heart. It, it does nothing to make me a different person or a better person. But when I look at Jesus dying on that cross and refusing to unlove me and love, unlove any of us, and I look at that undying love, that the song now is that reckless love. Yeah, I'll die. I'll die for you. When I look at that kind of love, I am drawn to that. It's no longer a transaction. It's a relation. I'm drawn to that. And, and I, I, I hear the invitation. We can be friends. You know, we can, we can be close. And that friendship, that closeness, that allowing him to, to love me day by day the same way he did on the cross to all, for all humanity, to let him love me, that's what changes me. That's what transforms my heart. And, and it's interesting, some of our family members, her extended family and my extended, not Loretta, but my extended, our extended family, we've tried to explain this to them. You know, about it's, all, it, it's the Beatles song, all you need is love. It's, it's a little deeper than their love they were talking about, but all you need is love. That's all you need. And always it's followed, yeah, but, yeah, but you got to have some teeth there. You got to put some rules on it. You got to dangle them over hell from time to time. You got, you know, you, you know what I'm saying? No, no. That kind of stuff doesn't change my heart. It may scare your heart for a little bit, but it doesn't transform a heart. This love is what transforms a heart and changes it permanently into a different... It just doesn't just quantitatively change it. It qualitatively changes a heart. It becomes a new, different... Is that what Jesus meant by born again, maybe? It becomes a brand new heart. Brand new, different heart. So, uh, you know... That's kind of where I've landed on, and, and there's a lot of us who have landed on this, that this, this is what the cross means. It's not some, some business deal that's made with God or a legal deal. This is, this is a relational thing that God did to say, I want you to know how much I love you. I'm going to show you how much I love you. And that love wins my, my heart. Very last thing is I'm not going to get a chance to say anything on Easter because we're not going to meet. So what's the empty tomb about? What's that about? Is that God flexing? Look what I can do. Jesus never flexed any other time. I mean, he could have done all kind of tricks. Look what I can do. I'm God, you know. He could, he could have done all kind of stuff. He could have flown off like Superman. He could have done whatever he wanted. Well, he did there at the end, didn't he? Um, I forgot about that part. But it, it's, you, you have all the power in the universe, and, and yet you choose not to flex. You're, you're not there to show off what you can do. But people look at the tomb and say, that displays the power of God. Maybe it does. Maybe it does. I'm not going to argue with that. I think, this is my personal theory, and you can take it for however you want. I think Jesus could only stay dead so long because he loved his people so much. I know how Peter feels right now. He denied, and he's feeling terrible. And I know my guys are scared to death. And I know Mary is so confused. 
She doesn't know where I've got to get back to my people. So no grave clothes could keep him in. No big rock could keep him in. And it's not because of his power. It's because of his love. That just said, I gotta get, I gotta go be with my people. I gotta go be with my people that love on them. That's my theory. I don't know if that's what Easter's about, but that that's my theory on it anyway. Ah, let's talk to Jesus. Jesus, uh, we don't know what to say to you right now. Uh, I know that I take your death more personally now than I used to because you've stepped in so close as a friend. It's nothing I've done. It's what you've done. And I, I take it, your death this year has hurt me worse than it's ever hurt me before. How much you love us and how far you'll go. You, you went to the absolute extreme. You couldn't go any further than what you went to let us know how you felt about us. And so we thank you and we'll talk to you later. One more thing before Matt comes up. I just remembered this. Uh, Laura said it at the end of her message this morning. The cross doesn't change. This is something you can stick in your pocket and take home. The cross doesn't change the way God sees me. It changes the way I see God. It's always been the other way around. It changes the way I see God. <laughs>